Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can come before you to learn, uh, to grow. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would teach us uh, the majestic things that you have done in times past and how that changes and affects us now and how our future is secure. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us these things, you'd grow us, and that our minds would be transformed so that we'd be more like Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're talking about covenant theology. Uh, The last... However many months we've been talking about it, we've hit a lot of different points. We've had a lot of different definitions. We've talked about a lot of different covenants. Um, I hope that what I've succeeded in doing is showing you how all the covenants work together, right, and push us towards Jesus. And I hope what I haven't done is make you more confused and feel like you have no idea what a covenant is. Or um, I hope this has been illuminating and helped clear up things and just made this more accessible. Because I think covenant theology is, it's the, the... the framework, right? This is the, the scaffolding that the building is built out of. You don't have a relationship with God without a covenant. And we talked about that months ago, right, when we asked that question. You can't have a relationship with God outside of a covenant. So we talked about how you're either in the covenant with the Lord through Christ, or you're in covenant with the Lord on your own terms, Right, your standing before him is either dependent upon your mediator, Jesus, or upon your own works. There's no middle ground. There's no in the middle. Right? It's one or the other. Um, and you can't know him outside of covenant. That's how he reveals himself. Right? When God created heaven and earth, he made a covenant. He made a covenant with Adam. He said, here I am. I'm going to give myself to you and show you myself to you. And here's what you shall do. Right? Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because the day you do it, you shall surely die. But even before God did that, even before God created everything, He had already made a covenant. We call that the covenant of redemption. We talked about that in review last week, but I just want to hit it again. Um, So what is the covenant of redemption? Can anyone tell me what the covenant of redemption is? Who are the, the parties, who are the members of the covenant of redemption? What's that? God within himself. The triune God, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when Jesus comes and prays his high priestly prayer in John 17, right? He says, I came not to do my will. I came to do the work you gave me to do. And I've done it. Well, then you ask, well, when did God give him this work, right? What work is Jesus talking about? He's talking about coming to earth, becoming human, uh, suffering, living a perfect life, dying on the cross. All these things are the work that God the Father gave Jesus to do. So what is the, the, the Father's role in the redemption, the covenant of redemption? What things does he do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he sends the son. Uh, he is the one who I, I came to do the will of him who sent me, Jesus will say. He elects. He elects. Yeah, he chooses, he elects, he ordains. Um, he's the one who creates the plan and sets out the, the providence. And he's the one who elects God's people or his people. That's right. So when Jesus fulfills the covenant... God the Father honors his side of the bargain. He gives to Jesus a people, but also a great name, right? This Philippians 
It says, and so therefore, he was given a name that is above every name. Well, didn't he already have a name above every name? He was already God. It's because Philippians is pointing to the fact that Jesus earned, right? He earned something through the covenant of redemption. He earned the right to be called son of God, um, even though he was already son. What is the, so we know what the son does, right? He comes, he, he works out the redemption of God's people. But what does the spirit do? Is he just kind of like, yeah, go team. You guys are doing great. Sean? What does that mean? Okay, applies God's work, Jesus' work of redemption to the people. What does that mean? Right, yeah. The Spirit, so he applies the work of Christ, which means he's the one who brings, who works faith in people's hearts. He's the one who changes them, right? In Joel, uh, there's a prophecy that the Lord is going to take away the stony hearts, hearts of stone, and instead give hearts of flesh, which means there's going to be a transformation, a renewal. No longer will you be dead in your sin, but now you'll be alive in Christ. Well, how does that work? The Spirit comes and does something. (laughs) The Spirit comes and gives you something new. He changes you. In fact, that's the only way to be saved. There isn't another way. Right? You can't change yourself. You can't give yourself heart surgery. Um, the Spirit has to come and do it. So the Spirit's work is incredibly important. But it's not just that He comes and then He does this, this work, changes your heart, and then kind of you know, goes away and says, all right, good luck, you got this. No, He continues to be a part of your heart. He rests upon you. Um, he fills you. And so when Paul says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, what he means is that you are a living, breathing vessel for the Lord. The Lord dwells within you. That should change how you live, right? That changes how you treat your body and how you treat your life and how you treat your thoughts and how you treat your desires. Um, All that flows from the fact that you belong to the Lord and that he dwells within you. Um, And then he continues to sanctify you. The Spirit sanctifies. He works. He gives you new life continually. He's the one who strengthens you against temptations. He's the one who comforts you. He's the one who convicts you of sin. He's the one who's constantly working in your life. So covenant of redemption is not far off distant topic. This is about your life right now, how you've come to be saved, and how the Lord is working in your life. But everything that Jesus does flows out of this commitment that he made. But we don't how we contact, how we touch the covenant of redemption, right, is not through us doing anything. It's through the Lord. It's through the Spirit joining us to Christ's work. So when we start to talk about the new covenant, what we're talking about is this is our covenant with the Lord through Jesus, our mediator, who is keeping the covenant of redemption. So I'm trying to keep those things clear, right? Jesus was keeping the covenant of redemption when he came and worked salvation. The new covenant is how we partake in Jesus' work. The new covenant is how we partake in Jesus' salvation. Um, 
So which covenant, so if, if the new covenant is new, right, which covenant is the old covenant? What does that mean? What, is there an old covenant? Which one is it? My guess is the covenant with Adam. Okay, maybe covenant with Adam. It's a good guess. It's one option for sure. Mosaic covenant. That's another option. Could we could we say that it's that the Abrahamic is the old covenant? We could if that's the answer. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just trying to push you to think about okay, covenants. There's distinctions, right? But is there a difference between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant? Laura's saying yes. Well, I would think that makes sense. Okay. In one sense, you could say all of them are old because now the new has come. John? And in another sense, they're all the same. There's a thread that begins in the Garden of Eden and continues to Christ. Okay, so you could also say, in a sense, they're all the same. There's, there's, a, there's a thread that follows, a historical thread that starts in the Garden. Christ says he comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Right. So it's, they don't really end, they morph into something else. Okay. So John's point is that there's a thread, right? They're all connected. These covenants are not disconnected from each other. There's a thread that begins in history at Genesis 3.15 that flows throughout all of history. And he's right. The new covenant... We, we call it the New Covenant because of Jeremiah 31. But even while there are new things about it, God is actually not doing anything new. Which is the wild thing. <laughs> right? The things that God does in the New Covenant are not actually new things. He's doing them in ways that are surprising. Right? We haven't really seen him do these things in this way. We haven't seen God become incarnate before. But Jesus has always been walking with his people. Since Moses and since Abraham and since before, right? When is Jesus the Son of God? When has he not been with his people? When has he not been talking to them? When has he not been showing them his grace? Um, You could even say, right, that when we see the cross and we see Jesus suffering, we see God doing the same things in the past. One example is that when Jesus goes uh, before um, the high priests, right, and they're accusing him and all these false witnesses come before him to accuse him, uh, Matthew 26, we're going to reference this in the sermon today, it says that Jesus remained silent. Well, that's not the first time that the Son of God has ever remained silent in the face of the accusations of his people. Genesis 3. The woman that you gave me, she gave to me and I ate. God, it's your fault. Does God respond to the accusations? No. Instead, he offers a sacrifice. It's the same sort of thing, right? It's the Lord is still bearing, enduring his people's accusations silently. He's still showing mercy and grace. Um, He's still laying his life down for his people. It's just when we come to the new covenant, now we see it in a way that we've never seen before. So that's 
when we start to talk about the new covenant, I don't want you to think, okay, this is new, everything that has been in the past, forget about it. It's old, it's dusty, it's stinky, it belongs in a mothball closet, we're not going to think about it anymore. No, everything the Lord's doing in the new covenant is the same thing that he's been doing all along. So what we say is that there, there aren't multiple covenants of grace. There's only one. It began in Genesis 3.15, and it flowed throughout history, throughout the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and it culminates in the New Covenant. But what we can talk about right, is how is, it, how is the New Covenant different? What things does the Lord do in the New Covenant that are surprising or that um, He's doing the same things but in, in more beautiful ways? How is it the same? How is it different? So those are good questions. So I'm going to ask you guys, how is the New Covenant different from the Abrahamic Covenant? How is it different? What does the Lord do differently in, in the New Covenant than the Abrahamic? Ready? The, the, the elect is drawn from all nations. somewhat new, but we've seen hints of that. Okay. Okay, the elect is drawn from all nations, but I will say that the Lord did promise to Abraham, right, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And Paul says that that's, that was the Lord preaching the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Right. Yeah. Ruth. Are there any other ways that... Yeah, Dave? It's, uh, it's not what we do, it's what Christ has done. Okay. That's the same thing as the Abrahamic, though. Yes, it is. Um, but, but because Christ has completed that work, the covenant of grace now is more in effect for us than the covenant of Abraham. Okay. So you could say that the new covenant is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic. Yeah. That's, that is a key difference, is that the Abrahamic promises, Abraham didn't see them. He didn't see them fulfilled in his lifetime. Uh, Israel didn't see them fulfilled in their lifetime. The Mosaic Covenant didn't fulfill the covenant of Abraham. It, it gave a temporary partial fulfillment, right? Okay, there's going to be a land. There's going to be lots of descendants. Um, there's going to be kings that come from you. Uh, and you shall all the nations be blessed. They were the beginnings of this in Israel and through the Mosaic Covenant. But it was temporary and it was breakable, right? God promised a land to Abraham. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a land as long as your descendants don't mess up. Now he said, I'm going to give you a land. So when Israel messes up and breaks the covenant and they lose the land in exile, you could be tempted to think, well, great, now the Abrahamic promises have been broken. No, it just means that the Mosaic wasn't the fulfillment. We're looking for something else. What else? Are there any other ways that the, the new covenant is different than the Abrahamic covenant? Different than all the other covenants because Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Okay. Yeah. It's not just the Abrahamic that Jesus came to fulfill, but everything that came before. And we talked about that extensively, right, with the Mosaic covenant when we talked about ceremonies and sacrificial system and um, the feasts. When are they, what are they, where are they all fulfilled? In Christ. Is there anything else? Anything else you can think of that the new covenant is different than the Abrahamic?
Yeah, different signs of the covenant. What were the signs of the Abrahamic? Uh, mainly baptism, right? uh, circumcision, uh-huh. and the Passover. Circumcision, for sure. Passover was... Well, Passover was definitely... Um, yeah, I think the Passover was a sacrament, but it was... I'm not sure it was... Yeah, that's that's worth thinking about more, but definitely circumcision. Right? Paul talks about that, that there's a sign and seal, but it was given after the promises, right? So it was not the... Um, what's the word? It was not the... Um, yeah, yeah, it's to seal the promises to Abraham and to his descendants. Um, but are there any differences then between circumcision and baptism? Are they the same? They're different in that a bloody sign is no longer required. Yeah, bloody sign is no longer required because the bloody sacrifice has already been done. Is there anything else that is there anything that baptism communicates in the new covenant that circumcision didn't? Protection. Meaning what? Yeah, not just redeemed, but transformed. I forget exactly what passage that was, but that was my point in the sermon a while ago, is that when Israel goes into the water, right, they're, they're afraid, they're terrified, they're yelling at God, they're, you know, shaking the bars because they're hemmed in on all sides. Um, but the people that comes out of the water, they're not afraid. <laughs> they're worshiping God. Right? There are different people. They've been transformed. Um, baptism points to that. Baptism points to transformation, to new life. Not just to being washed clean of sin, but then of having a new heart given, of being turned into a new creation. Okay, so hopefully that gives you some of the ties between the Abrahamic and the New Covenant, that the Lord's not doing anything new, but He is fulfilling what has come before. So, but then why did God make a new covenant? Right? Why was the Abrahamic not sufficient? Could God have just been fine without doing the new covenant? In other words, what does the new covenant teach us about the promised seed that the Abrahamic didn't? Right, we... We've been looking at the covenants through that big picture question. Abrahamic taught us, okay, the promised seed is going to come from Abraham. It's going to come through the line of Isaac. I think that the Abrahamic covenant makes promises of, you know, this is going to happen. And like you said, Abraham didn't see those fulfilled. But we have. The work is done. Jesus did everything necessary that that was promised. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus has done everything necessary. He's accomplished the promises. Um, he's earned them. But specifically, right, 
when we looked at the Mosaic Covenant, we saw how the Mosaic Covenant answers that question is, okay, what's the promised seed going to do? He's going to keep the law. Right? He's going to be a sacrifice. Um, he's going to be a mediator. He's going to um, uh, be a prophet, a priest, a king. He's going to... Um, Die on the third day. He's going to be raised again from, or he's going to be raised again from the grave on the third day, or on the seven plus one day, right, the eighth day. Um, so, what does the new covenant teach us about the promised seed that we haven't quite seen yet in all the other covenants? It's it's there, but we haven't quite seen it clearly yet about the seed himself. Okay, who exactly he is. Brittany? Uh, I was I think that's a good point. I think it's there, right? It's, it's implied through, for instance, the Abrahamic covenant. Who walks through the, the slain animals? It's God. The Lord walks through, indicating that he's going to keep it himself. Um, but as far as we know, especially the Davidic covenant, right? This promised seed is going to be a natural born son. He's going to be a human of the line of David. Um, so the fact that then it's a virgin birth and that it's the Holy Spirit who overshadows Mary and that this, this is, yes, he's fully human, but he's also fully God. That's pretty astounding that he is not just Messiah, right? He's not just Savior, but he is our Lord. He's the creator of the universe, worthy of all of our worship. So yeah, now we see clearly he is, he is man fully, and he's God fully. Any other things that the New Covenant teaches us about the promised seed? It's a better covenant with better promises. Yep. Yeah, it's Hebrews. All right, this is a, a better covenant. And why is it a better covenant? Because Christ paid it once for all. Okay, because Christ paid it once for all. But there's other things that Hebrews points out that we learn about Jesus through the new covenant. Specifically, the, Dan? We'll have a more intimate relationship with God at this point. Meaning, what do you mean? Old, old covenant was God leading. Now we have, as you just spoke about, the Holy Spirit working with our hearts. We now have His Word, you know, being part of our life. Yes. Yeah. And the Holy Spirit allowing us to act upon this. Yeah. Yeah, we're brought into a much closer relationship with the Lord. There aren't things in between. Right? With Israel, there were a lot of things that stood between them and God. Even though the Lord had brought them graciously in, there's still the sacrifices, the Levitical priesthood, there's, there's barriers. There's a, a veil in the temple wall, right? Preventing anybody to come in. Hebrews says that veil's been torn in two, which means the path forward, right, to God's presence has been opened wide completely open. There's no impediments. There's nothing in the middle anymore. Now the path between you and the Lord is free and clear. Um, because we have a high priest who isn't just really good. He's perfect. And he ever lives to intercede for us. Okay, so what are the terms of the new covenant? 
So now we've talked about a lot of the foundational, like how does it relate? But what are the actual terms of the new covenant? Which means, who are the parties involved? Um, how do you get in? What are the obligations? What are the blessings? What are the curses? What do you guys think? What are the terms of the new covenant? Faith. Okay. Meaning what? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's true. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So how does that fit into the terms of the covenant? Well, we've got to have the right object. It's not the sacrifices other than Christ. So we look to it fulfilled completely on our behalf. Yeah. In other words, right, faith is how you get in. Um, but then you pause and say, well, that, doesn't that put the burden on us, right, to do something to get into the new covenant? What do you think? Faith is given us, given to all God's Faith is a gift, right? That's Ephesians. Um, you get in by faith, but faith itself is not get, not earned. It's not something that you do for yourself. It's something that the Lord gives to you. Uh, that's the work of the Spirit, right? <clears throat> by virtue of the covenant of redemption. So by virtue of the covenant of redemption, the Spirit applies the benefit of Christ to you, changes you, gives you faith, and now you're brought into the new covenant. What else? What are the other terms? So you're one party, right? You're one of the parties. Who are the other parties? God, yes. Which one? Which person? Okay, triune God. Yes, definitely. But each has a role to play. Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Okay. So the Father, he draws the elect right into the new covenant. And the Holy Spirit affects it. The Holy Spirit affects it. What's Jesus do? We just talked about it. Well, he lives to make our flesh. Yeah. He's, he is still our mediator. Because remember, um, the, one of the big differences between a covenant of works and a covenant of grace is, is there a mediator or not? In a covenant of works, there's no mediator. Because remember what a mediator does. A mediator is not a neutral party who's trying to help two opposing guys get a compromise. Right? He's not trying to arbitrate between, well, you stole my bike. Well, you kicked my dog. No, he, that's, not his, that's not what a mediator in the biblical covenantal model in the Bible, a mediator is someone who acts on behalf of someone else. A mediator is the one who takes all of the obligations on himself so that someone else can be blessed. So we still have a mediator. It's not that, okay, now we're in a new covenant, now we're on our own, standing before God. No, we still have a mediator. We're still brought into a relationship where Jesus intercedes for us. Jesus is still the one that Praise for us, and it's it's His righteousness that we have. It's not our own, which means how do you, could you get out of the new covenant by disobedience? Why not? Because if you're in it, you're, you, you can't get in on your own terms, and you can't get out. Right, because you. 
because you have a mediator. If any part of the new covenant, if, if any part of staying in of the new covenant relied upon you, you would be going to hell. But thankfully, because God is good and gracious, 100% relies upon him. So that means getting in to the new covenant is a gift of God. Staying in the new covenant is a gift of God. And remaining in it for eternity is a gift of God. There's no, there's no step along the way where God then turns it over to you, right? And says, all right, I've done, I've done the lion's share. I've done 99% of the work. I just need you to do this 1%. It's not how it works. But are there any obligations that we are required to fulfill in the new covenant? John? I'd say yes, as secondary okay. obligations, I guess. I, I don't really like the word obligation, but um, requirements maybe. Um, and that would be that when we are given a new heart, um, and we realize that, that we don't hide our joy under uh, a basket, but we let it sit on a table. Mm-hmm. So the light fills the world, and other people are drawn to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, would, I would say that, yeah, that's probably more of a result than an obligation. <laughs> but we're required to do that. We're required to recognize that, and in recognition of that, then to share that. Okay, so John says that, yes, there are obligations, but they're more like a result than they are to get in. Um, the way that I would say it is that, yes, there is an obligation. It's to believe. Right? It's to have faith in Jesus Christ. But faith, as James says, faith without works is dead. Which means if you have faith, your life is going to look different. And if it doesn't look different, something's wrong with your faith. So works, good works, are not, an, are not the condition to get in or stay in the new covenant. But they are a necessary consequence of being in the new covenant, of having faith. For the security of the saints. That's part of it. Jesus said in John 6, This is the will of both the Father, of him who sent me. Uh, This is the the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up to the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him has everlasting life, and I will raise him from the last day. That's good stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Whoops. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Not conditioned on your obedience. But we also have to wrestle with the fact that our lives can't look the same. We can't claim Christ and yet live as though we weren't Christians. Um, And that's why there are things like church discipline. Because it's the Lord takes seriously how we live. Uh, There are lots of imperatives, commands in the New Testament for how we are to live as as forgiven and and chosen and transformed saints. Right, to not live the same way we used to live, but to give up the old ways, to set our minds on Christ, to do good works, to be like him. 
So when did the new covenant begin? The terms are, right, you get in by faith through the work of Jesus. He's your mediator to the Father. The Spirit works that in you. When did this new covenant begin, right? When, when was it inaugurated in history? Dave? Okay, sure, right after the fall of Genesis 3, but I'm talking specifically about the new covenant as an administration of the covenant of grace. When did that begin? Because we can point to when the Abrahamic began. We can point to when the Davidic began. What do you think? Sean? I think if you're going to define or use the word inaugurated, we'd have to probably say that it began at the resurrection. Of whom? Jesus. Why? Because that's when the promise given to Abraham was fulfilled. The promise. Or even Genesis 3, like Dave said. I think in one sense, yeah, it begins in Genesis 3 because it's like the seed form. But that inauguration of that covenant needed to be completed by whoever that seed would ultimately be mm-hmm. through history, you know, down the many years of history. Yeah. So Sean says the resurrection. Um, Ephesians says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So in God's plan of redemption, it was before our time. Sure, yes. In God's perfect plan, he, he purposed this for eternity. But the choosing, right, the electing happens in the context of the covenant of redemption, um, which began before time. I think we can point to... When the new covenant began, and I think it is the resurrection, and I think it's because um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, we're still in our sins. What does that mean? Why, why would we still be in our sins if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? You could say it's on the cross when he dies. Jesus says it's finished. Um, yeah, I think you're right. The resurrection is vindication. It's, it's proof that Jesus and his work was perfect and accepted in the Lord's sight. Um, John, you have something to add? conquered but I think Paul does say that we would still be in our sins if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead why what what does Jesus accomplish on the cross what is he doing okay conquering death but that's resurrection but on the cross right Johnny he paid our debt he paid our debt Okay, so if you're 
if you're imagining, okay, my debt to God, my bank account is negative a billion because of all the sins I've done. When Jesus dies on the cross, now that is number is erased, right? What's left? Zero. What needs to happen? Yeah. Jesus' work has to be credited to us. It has to be validated or vindicated and credited to us. And I think it's the resurrection that completes the work of, okay, he's paid the price on the cross, and he conquers death and comes back from the grave. And not only are our sins forgiven, but now his righteousness is credited to us. Because... When Jesus is raised from the dead, it's the vindication that he lived the perfect life, that he was righteous. And if we are in Christ, if we die with Christ to our sins, that's great. But that doesn't give us anywhere to go from here. But if we're raised with Christ as well, not only have our sins been forgiven, but now it's as if we have been validated. It's as if we have been found righteous. That God, as he looks at Jesus and says, you are righteous and I'm going to raise you from the dead, he's doing the same thing to you. So you need both. Jesus has to die on the cross and he has to come back from the grave. And because he does both, we are found righteous. When will the new covenant end? Never ever? It's pretty cool. It's never going to end. Which means that you will never lose God. You can never fall away. There's no amount of sin that you can commit that will drive you from God. There is no one on earth that could drag you away from Him. There's no one that could separate you from him. Because the new covenant is founded upon Christ. And because it doesn't end, neither will you. You'll have eternal life through Jesus Christ. So not only do we see how how much God has done in the past, but we see that we have not just a vague hope for the future, We have absolute certainty about what the future will hold for us. Yeah, sure, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Gas prices might go up, they might go down. Life could get better, it could get worse. But we have absolute certainty about what happens after death. We'll be raised with Christ. Dan, did I see your hand? I was going to say, John 10 speaks specifically about... Christ and what he's done for us. And he specifically says, I am the gate. You come through me. Anybody else on the outside are robbers and thieves. So mm-hmm. um, that's pretty comforting. Yeah. Yeah. And I love Gary's verse too, right? He won't lose a single one of you. Are right, there any other questions or comments? Yeah. John 6, uh, 11, 25. Jesus said to I don't remember if it's Martha or Mary here. But he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asked, do you believe this? Yeah. Uh, If you believe in him, you shall never die. Okay, well, that's all the time we have for this morning. Um, Next week...
I will be gone next week, so Brett will take over um, for another week, and then the week, then we'll have two weeks after I return, and we'll talk about some things. I bet. All right, let's uh, give thanks to God and pray, and get ready for worship. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us into a covenant that we cannot break, and that you will not break. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you would help us to live lives that are honoring to you, that we would live out the reality that already exists for us, that we belong to you, that our bodies and our souls and our lives uh, are all yours. Help us, Lord, to live this out, to live out our faith, and pray that you would comfort us, you would return us to the gospel over and over again, and that as we worship you this morning, we would hear those sweet words that our sins are forgiven that Jesus Christ has come back from the grave, and we have life forevermore through him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.